Hi there, it's Andrew here again at Culloden Christian Assembly Home Bible Study Podcast. And this is the last one in our Hebrew series, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. This is podcast number 15. And I trust you've enjoyed each of the podcasts. If not, just remember that you can go back and listen to them. And I suppose now there's about 11 hours of uh, audio material for you to delve into Hebrews and try to understand it better. Uh, Thank you for uh, tuning in anyway, and we're going to read Hebrews chapter 13 just now, uh, and the first little section of the chapter down to verse number six. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with it uh, to it with me. Father, we pray that as we look into your word, we might be blessed by it, that everyone who contacts and gets through in this podcast might focus their minds on the beauty of your word just now in the Lord's name. Amen. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is honorable among all, or let marriage be held in honor among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's reading is from the New King James Version of the Holy Scriptures. So this is study 15, and we're on to practical exhortations that the writer brings to us at the end of this book. The main argument has been concluded, uh, and now he brings home to these uh, Hebrew Christians some of the practical aspects of Christianity. He has told us in chapter 11, you'll remember, about a life of faith, and he has exhorted them towards a life of faith. In chapter 12, quite a bit of it is taken up with the hope that we have, an unshakable kingdom that is set in front of us, the blessings of coming to Mount Zion, the heavenly mount, and so on. In chapter 13, there really, at the beginning, seems to be a focus, not so much on faith and hope, but on that other great virtue of Christianity, which is love. And in this case, Philadelphia, brotherly love, that bond that affection that comes between brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Uh, And that is really emphasized in this early section from verse number one to verse number six, as we'll see. If we're dividing up the whole chapter, um, I've put it like this in the handout, which you can access through the podcast um, or or email me uh, on annwilliamson01 at yahoo.co.uk. Um, You'll notice in verse 1 to 6, I've entitled it A Christian Social Duties. Then from verse number 7 to verse number 17, uh, we have what you might call a Christian's spiritual duties. There's a contrast made between Christianity and Judaism, as there has been often in this book so far. And then finally, I've just spoken about a Christian's personal duties. Uh, And he speaks about prayer being offered for him. He he gives a benediction to the readers and he speaks about greeting 
um, different people and so on. So if you like, you can divide it up in that way and maybe that will help you to keep uh, an understanding of what's in the chapter. But in this first section, and we're going to focus in on a Christian social duties, there's a real emphasis, as I say, on love. And we, we spend a long time in our home Bible study on this little section. There's so much uh, practical warmth and truth in just going down each of these verses slowly. Let brotherly love continue. Love one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on doing it. That seems to be the, the force, uh, a fraternal, uh, a filial love that, that should mark us as brothers and sisters in Christ. I often go back, in fact, I was speaking to my little children about this very story today, to the story of Cain and Abel. And you remember when Cain slew his brother Abel, um, it was a denial of this brother love. And you remember the Lord came to him and said, uh, where, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain's response was, am I my brother's keeper? And really, there is something about having brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you don't have physical brothers and sisters, but spiritual brothers and sisters with a deeper bond uh, that we have as a result of being in God's family, having God as our father and the Lord as our savior, and we've been brought into this wonderful family of God. And as such, we should show brotherly love. We should have each other's back in a way that obviously Cain didn't have Abel's. We are, in that sense, our brother and sister's keepers. And so just at the beginning, as he begins to deal with this, he, is, he starts to speak about proper expressions of this filial love of how this love can be seen among brothers and sisters in Christ. And he begins with this idea of letting it continue. Uh, there seems to be a thought that, that perhaps it was petering out a little bit for whatever reason, that there were some that didn't want to gather as they once did. We thought about that in chapter 11 and 12. But, but now he is going to focus in on the positive exhortation to to really enthuse ourselves in in brother love and in sister love because of course incorporated in brother love is uh, sister love in the language let brotherly love continue that's a proper expression of, of our appreciation of one another is to look out for each other is to be there for each other is to help each other um in whatever way we can. So that's the family side of, of that love. What about the hospitality side of that love? Because it's developed now. He says in verse number two, do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, this idea behind the entertaining of strangers is being a, not only brother love, but stranger love. That, that has the thought, the, the word, but even the way it's structured. Um, to have a fondness for those that we don't know, to be willing to go an extra mile for even Christians that we have never really met before, but care about because they're in the family of God. And of course, we could extend this further than Christians. I think in a context that is still speaking about uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the early 
um, years um, of the first century, it was quite difficult for Christians to stay in in places like inns. There weren't hotels the way we have them today. There were there were places, inns and taverns and so on, and many of them would have been um, very difficult places for Christians to stay in. They were hotbeds of immorality, um, and and so Christians were expected to care for and look after other Christians, even at the drop of a hat, even if they didn't know them. And then he gives this um, positive side to it. It's not just, you know, you think of a lot of Christians coming through your your, your home, you might be uh, tired and weary. And the last thing you might want to do is, especially if you don't have very much money, these guys had lost a lot of their earthly possessions. Uh, as we know from earlier chapters, uh, we, they might not have had much to share. But what, what we read here is some have unwittingly entertained angels. And of course, the story uh, is told in Genesis 18 and 19 about um, Abraham and then in the next chapter, Lot, um, when they had shown this wonderful hospitality and it had turned out that there were angelic visitors involved and, and even um, what, what we term a theophanies, a, a visitation of God in the form uh, of, of a human being. You, you'll remember the story uh, about Abraham at his tent door. And we see in that story his enthusiasm, his, his desire to be hospitable, his, his killing the fatted calf, if you like, his, his willingness to uh, incorporate these people in his life. And, and so we should learn from that um, and this is a proper expression of Christian love, to have this hospitality. And God can even use it to bring a message to us. We can be entertaining in that sense, angels unaware. Now, the question was asked, do, do, do I think that you could actually be entertaining an angel? And of course, I wouldn't rule that out because God is God. And I wouldn't rule that out. But I think the main point of the passage is that God is pleased to use people that are brought into our circumstances for our blessing and for our benefit as well. We should value other Christians that we bring into our homes. And by extension, of course, we should value everyone that we bring into our homes. You remember the Lord Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. We find him eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. And so the Lord has left us an example of reaching out to others uh, through means of hospitality. But not only do we have proper expressions of love in, in that kind of spiritual family sense, brotherly love, or in the hospitality sense of stranger love, but also sympathy and empathy. You'll see in the next expression, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Now, just think about that for a minute. Um, we, we are to have such a bond with those who are in Christ, those who are part of the Christian family, that when we hear of them being mistreated or maligned or even put in prison, we should be putting ourselves in their shoes and sitting beside them and praying and remembering them in their circumstances. Now, I feel very guilty when I hear this because I feel so cushioned and, and 
I don't have much to think about sometimes uh, of hardship and of suffering in comparison to so many believers around the world, so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I should have a heart for praying for them and for, uh, and, and so that's a rebuke to me. Um, you'll notice that it says, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now, now what exactly does he mean by this? We discussed this in our, in our uh, Bible study. Uh, is he saying that you and I are in the same body, the body of Christ, as these persecuted Christians, and therefore, as one member suffers, all the members suffer, like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us. Is that what he's saying? It could be. He could be saying that, that as we're in the body of Christ with them, as we're part of the same um, spiritual unity, uh, an organic unity of being in Christ, uh, when one suffers, the rest suffer. And the head suffers. We remember that in Acts 9, of course, don't we? Well, the Lord Jesus, when he spoke to um, uh, Paul, or Saul, we should say, Saul of Tarsus, on the road uh, to Damascus, and he says, why are you persecuting me? And the Lord Jesus, of course, was in heaven. And yet he said that Paul was persecuting him. He was persecuting the Christians, but the link between the living Lord in glory and the Christians on earth was the fact that they were part of the body of Christ. And so there's this lovely unity and union that is seen between us. However, the other way of looking at this verse is that it is saying, rather, that since you're in the body, since you're prone and subject to suffering and to difficulty and distress, you should be able to sympathize with those who are in the same condition. They face similar things. They can be mistreated. They can be chained. They can be prisoners. And you know a little bit of being hurt, so you should be caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now he goes on, and he's dealt with family and hospitality and sympathy as proper expressions of love. And then he, he points out matrimony or, or marriage. And he says, let marriage be held in honor by all. I take it that's the understanding of it. Uh, there's different ways we can translate it. Marriage is honorable among all. Um, of course, that's true. But it seems to be that there's probably um, a, a command in this, an exhortation, let marriage be held in honor. Among all. You see, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, when, when, when Paul had spoken about um, love abounding and overflowing at the end of chapter 3, he comes into chapter 4 and then he puts uh, another side on it. Here were these persecuted Christians in Thessalonica and even these ones here in, in the Hebrew, uh, uh, among the Hebrews, and they were being persecuted on the outside and they were being brought closer and closer together as, uh, as Christians. And there was just a danger that that care for each other might overflow into wrong relationships. And so he preserves that. He says, let marriage be held in honor by all. And so this marriage relationship is the only relationship in scripture, a marriage between a man and a woman, it's the only relationship in scripture in which we have the marriage bed which we have sexual relations. And so the, let marriage be held in honor among all and the bed, let it be undefiled. 
Don't let anything come in to, to hinder your relationship with your wife and the wife with the husband. But he says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's very solemn that he brings that in here. He said, listen, just remember the world around us has very low and lax morals when it comes to sexuality. But remember, that's in the realm of the world and God will judge that one day. And so as Christians, we should not be marked by that. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Now, you see what he's done now? He switched from the proper expressions of love to improper love, whether it be immorality, um, in that sense of sex outside of the marriage relationship between one man and woman. Um, now he also deals with improper love as to covetousness. We can love people the wrong way, or we can love money the wrong way or possessions the wrong way uh, and this idea of covetousness is the love of money that's what's behind it let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have so it's possessions how do i look at my possessions for he himself has said i will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? And of course, he lifts uh, a couple of um, little beautiful little portions from the Old Testament here. But you know what he does? Uh, and I think it's helpful for us to understand this. There's maybe two main ways in which we look upon money or possessions. We want it to increase our social status so that we might have different friends. And so we might want to be rich so that we enter the rich man's world, as it were, or, or the rich person's world, we could say. And the Lord says here, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So instead of worrying about being in the presence of other rich people and of, of being in the social uh, hierarchy and the social elite. You are in the social elite. The Lord himself has promised to be with you. His presence is with you. And not only is his presence with you, his protection is with you. Look at the next verse. Uh, we may boldly say, the Lord is my help. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so there's that sense in which he protects, he keeps, he provides for his people. Now we look at money perhaps as a social thing or as a security thing. We, we want the, the status or we want the security. Money in that sense uh, is something that we like to have a pot of because we can trust in, it, in trouble. But as Christians, we've got to be careful with that. In fact, the Lord discourages that we treasure up possessions on there, but rather that we treasure up possessions in heaven in Matthew chapter 6 and so here he's saying the Lord is my help I will not fear what can man do to me and the force I take it is that that he himself is our protector he is our security therefore we shouldn't be loving money we shouldn't be loving possessions uh, because um, we have him as our security. Now, moving onward from a Christian's social duties to a Christian's 
spiritual duties. I'll try and explain what I mean by that after we've read this section from verse 7 to 17. Remember those who rule over you and have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burnt outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he may sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to be good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased to do good, I should say, and to share. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. We are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do as well, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, and so on. We'll come back to that last section in a little while. So here in this section, section from verse 7 to 17, uh, we have um, something of the Christian spiritual duties. Uh, you'll notice it starts with remembering past leaders, verse number seven. And you'll see how it ends really by obeying present leaders, verse number 17. Obey those who have the rule over you and be submissive and so on. And in between that, he deals with what we might term um, a call to separate from the Jewish camp. Um, really, I think this is key to the whole epistle. And obviously, the spiritual leaders were in tune with the, with the Hebrew writer on this issue. And they're trying to move them away from Judaism so that they're firmly identified as Christians, not as Jews. So coming back to this section a little bit more detail. Remember those who have the rule over you or who rule over you or had the rule over you. Um, it's in the past tense, who spoke the word of God to you. So this is a lovely little characteristic of the leaders that they were those who spoke God's word to God's people. Whose faith follow. Not only did they have a, their lips speaking God's word, but their life, their faith uh, was evident from their lives. Considering the end of their conduct, the outcome of their conduct. It would seem that many of these leaders had paid for it with their life. They had been faithful to the end, like that martyr Antipas that's spoken, uh, that the scripture speaks to us about in, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 2 
and three. Uh, so, so they were willing to go right to the very end in their love for Christ and in their, in their uh, faithfulness to Christ. And then he says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If in the past, yesterday, those faithful leaders had been faithful to the Lord, they had had that support from the Lord right to the end. Now that same Lord is with us today, and he will be with us forever. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is the one that we can trust um, to, to draw from uh, the examples of the past and to remember that we have that stability um, of the Lord in the background of our lives. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established with by grace and not with foods. Now, here's this interesting um, throwback again to the, the problems of living in a Jewish community, around, with a Jewish community around them. And coming from that community, there was a danger that some of those old habits died hard. It was very difficult for them to leave aside issues such as meats and, and external things. You'll remember in, in Mark chapter 7, uh, the, the Pharisees, they had a, a ritualistic way about washing plates and so on. And, and there was a whole host of things about how food or whatever actually went into the people. And the Lord has to say, listen, it's not about what goes into the person physically. It's about what comes out of the heart of a person morally. That's where the defilement comes from. It comes from within. And so the externalism of, of, Judea, of, of Pharisaic Judaism was still being felt in this community. And the danger was that they would be thinking about things like external meats and so on, instead of understanding the grace of God and what God was doing in their hearts and doing in their lives. Their hearts should be established by grace, not with foods that have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Then he says something very interesting. He says, we have an altar which those that serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You see, he picks up on this idea of eating and, and, and partaking. And he says, listen, in Christ and in the death of Christ, we have something that they have no right to because they have not bowed and acknowledged him as their Lord and Savior. Now, this is helpful, I think, to understand. It's okay that they live beside Jews. It's okay that they witness to them. It's okay that they had them as members of their family. But they should not think that, that Judaism was just some kind of cousin to Christianity uh, and that the Jews were all right. No, no, they have no right to eat of Christ. They, they, they have never acknowledged who Christ is. And so there is a dividing line between Christianity and Judaism. And it's this, it's the cross of Christ. Now, we live in a day where many people are involved in defending the faith and, and they'll speak about the Judeo-Christian worldview. And, and I do it um, because the, the worldview that we have as Christians is rooted in the truth of the Old Testament as well as the truth of the New Testament. However, we must not think that a Jew defending the truth of the Old Testament is in the same spiritual place as a Christian defending the truth of the Bible. The reason why I say that is this. They have not come to the cross of Christ. They have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord. And therefore, their 
in danger of eternal destruction. And, and so we must not amalgamate all these thoughts. We must remember that there are massive differences between us. Uh, and so it's good to remember that, uh, I think, as, as Christians, that, that what is being said here is that Christianity is completely separate from Judaism. Continuing on, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burnt outside the camp. Now, this was characteristic of the Old Testament uh, practices for the sin offering, where, where the sin offering was burnt outside this camp. The blood was taken in and the sin offering was, was put outside. And that place was seen as unclean. And, and what he goes on to say is, by the way, that Jesus, he was outside. Jesus was, it says here, therefore Jesus also that he makes set apart the people with his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. And you'll notice this re recurring theme of outside. Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The camp is Judaism. It's all that Judaism represents. And the Lord Jesus was taken outside of Judaism, outside of the city, outside of the gate, and rejected by the Jewish people and placed on a cross. And he was in the outside place for a reason. Because he was going to separate those who are linked to him by precious blood. He was going to separate those people from Judaism. Now, if you want to look at this in a different, from a different angle, you can look at John chapter 9 and 10. You'll remember that occasion when the, the man was blind and eventually he had his sight restored by the Lord Jesus. And by the end of chapter nine, he is starting to see who Jesus really is. And he has been cast out by the synagogue. In ch into chapter 10, the Lord Jesus tells those Jewish leaders, he says, other sheep I have. I'm going to take these sheep and I'm going to take them out of Judaism, out of the sheepfold. And then I'm going to unite them with, with the rest of my flock. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I will bring. And there will be one flock and one shepherd, and it will all be outside of Judaism. Now, that's another angle on the same truth, I take it. So the Lord's in the outside place, and he is calling his people out of Judaism. This is important that we understand. Here we have no continuing city. We should go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And so Christians are separated, therefore, from Judaism. We have no continuing city. Uh, you think of those Jewish children growing up and then turning to Christ. And, and, and beforehand, the Zion and, and Jerusalem was so important. It was just everything about it. They came up three times a year and all that. And now they're being told, listen, there's no continuing city on earth for us now. We seek one to come. Faith is a grasped hold of the future and the unseen and has brought us into the presence that's chapter 11 we we've understood that we have an unshakable kingdom not like the shakable kingdom of israel but now we have uh, something greater and better and we have that that continuing city that is to come that eternal city to look forward to therefore then he says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
Uh, do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The question might be asked, well, we are now missing out on the Jewish sacrifices. We are missing out in all the ritual of Judaism, the external ritual of Judaism. What do we have now? Well, he says, listen, you can come with your sacrifices. Of course, we know that the sacrifice of Christ has been emphasized in this book. But now it's, the emphasis is placed on practical sacrifices that these Christians can make in their priestly capacity. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So when we praise the Lord, when we continually offer that praise, we are giving thanks to him. We are sacrificing to him. And also, if we do good and we share and we give to others in need and, 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 and other uh, Christians or whatever, for such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So we can have a God who is well pleased with our sacrifices. Sadly, the old Jewish sacrifices that we're continuing, we're not bringing any pleasure to God. The veil had been rent and God had finished with the old and yet they were continually doing them. Now we have sacrifices we can bring, which bring him a pleasure. And then he finishes it by going back to rulers, but he says, speaking about present rulers, obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. How very solemn that really is. Now, coming to the last section, we'll read it and then we'll conclude our little study. Verse number 18, pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, those of Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. You notice he finishes with grace, which is a good way for any Christian letter to finish. Notice, first of all, the supplication for the writer, verse 17 and 18, then the benediction for the readers, and finally the conclusion of the epistle, verse 22 to 25. The, the supplication for the writer, pray for us. Pray for us. And notice he tells us, for we are confident that we have good conscience and all things desiring to live honorably. It seems they're under some false accusation. Uh, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. It may be that they're apprehended in prison themselves, whoever the writer is. And so they're praying, uh, not just that the person might be brought, the, uh, the people themselves may be brought into line with God's will. That's one good reason to pray, a subjective reason, if you like. But because objectively, prayer changes things. I urge you that I may be restored to you the sinner. So prayer doesn't only have a subjective effect, i.e. Uh, an effect on the people who are praying, but it has an objective effect in God's timing and in God's superintending will. Answers to prayer will be seen 
And I'm urging you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Then he gives a benediction, verse 20 to 22. He prays himself for them. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, a great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He has spoken about the new covenant. I take it that's the same covenant. Uh, how is the Lord brought again from the dead? Uh, what, why does it say through the blood of the everlasting covenant? Well, I, I take it that for the covenant to be brought to the sheep and for them to enter into the good of it, it necessitates a risen shepherd. It necessitates a mediator of the new covenant. There is no other way in which this life can be given, no other way in which this forgiveness can be found, no other way in which the blessings of the indwelling Holy Spirit can be seen and law written on, on the hearts. None of that can come to pass unless that great shepherd of the sheep is raised from the dead and exalted to glory. And so it's through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you complete in every good work to do as well, working in you what is well-pleasing in sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And as he concludes, and he brings it all together, he tells us the importance of greeting, of salutation. I appeal to you, brethren, bear the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in a few words. He has not gone, gone into it the way he could have, perhaps. And yet we have this beautiful letter. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you, if he comes shortly, greet all those who rule over you. Notice that again, the third time we have reference to leaders in the last chapter. They are to salute those who rule over them, to greet them. And all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so we should have that bond of affection, that brotherly love between each other that as the chapter begins. Uh, and so he concludes this chapter, as it were, where he begins it with love and with grace. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so as we conclude our little series of 15 talks on the Hebrews, I trust you've been able to take something away from them. Um, I've had to scatter over uh, some parts and not stop for long on them, but I trust that you'll be blessed by uh, the podcast and that in all things that the Lord Jesus might have the preeminent place. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll have another series of podcasts in the future in the will of God. But thank you for concluding this series in the Hebrews. Lord bless.